Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Once you start adding these things together, and if you believe each one, then you start to get into the territory where Boris Johnson wins a majority of 40 or 50 or 60. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. With the general election just a few weeks away, we wanted to get the inside track from three party political experts on how their side's campaign has gone so far and what they expect to happen on December the 12th. From the Lib Dems, we welcome Mark Pack, the editor of Liberal Democrat Newswire, from Labour, Sienna Rogers, the editor of Labour List, and completing the lineup was the regular CapEx contributor and assistant editor of Conservative Home, Henry Hill. Enjoy listening. Okay, well, guys, thank you very much um, for joining us. We're here to discuss the only real political theme at the moment, which is the general election. We're about three weeks away, about at the halfway point. Um, And I think for once we'll start with the Liberal Democrats. I mean, Mark, it's fair to say things have not gone quite as well for your party as perhaps people would have expected at the start. We had Chukaramuna making some rather breathless predictions of 200 seats when he might not even win his own. I mean... How would you say things have gone? Obviously, you, you think from a Lib Dem perspective as well as possible, but... Yeah, I, obviously I'm predicting the Democrats will win 400 seats, but in the... I think it's been a real roller coaster year for the Liberal Democrats, and actually had it been... You know, if you, if you roll the clock back just to even January or February this year, the party being consistently on double figures in the polls would have seemed a huge step forward from where we used to be. Um, so in that sense, you know, it's still looking pretty good for an election result that is very significantly up in terms of votes and seats compared to the last general election. Obviously, the big unknown is the thing that hugely motivates Liberal Democrats at the moment is trying to stop Brexit. And there's that risk that there is an election in which the Lib Dems do well, maybe gain a whole load of seats from the Tories, but the Tories do so well against Labour in Northern England and the Midlands that it results in a Tory majority. And I guess if I had to bet at the moment, you'd sort of say... Things are looking reasonably promising for the Lib Dems, but there's definitely a big risk that it ends up being a reasonably promising result in, in the context of Brexit going ahead, which would be you know, devastatingly bad from a Lib Dem perspective. I mean, Henry, from a Tory perspective, how worried do you think CCHQ will be about losing seats in the South East, the South West to the Lib Dems because of that very issue? I mean, I've heard, for example, that some very, very safe Tory seats in the home counties are starting to look a little bit more marginal. Potentially. I mean, it's without, without um, sort of a lot of, uh, sort of really in-depth constituency, a lot of Lib Dem results are a result of local work mm. and local factors, and therefore it's often quite hard to see them coming, especially the more eye-catching ones. Uh, I think that the re- CCHQ will be moderately relieved that so far it looks like the, the Liberal Democrats aren't having, don't have an easy path back to their previous position of dominance in the South West because of Brexit. You know, there, there are... There are lots of seats that used to have Liberal Democrat MPs uh, often for quite a long time where they voted leave, there's now no Brexit Party candidate, and the Conservatives, I think, can be relatively confident, not in all of them, but of holding quite a lot of those. Then you've basically got another set of seats, which are basically their profile is that they're quite well-to-do, remain-leaning, usually Tory-held seats like St Albans, um, Cheltenham, and so on. Um, and those might go, but... Um, overall, and obviously we're three weeks out, and after 2017, nobody wants to make predictions, mm-hmm. it looks as if... The 
the, Lib- the, the Tories may be set to lose fewer seats to the Liberal Democrats than they might have been anticipating at the start of the campaign. And in the, con- in, and in the context of it now increasingly looking like they're not going to lose as many Scottish seats as was anticipated, that means that the hurdle that Boris Johnson needs to get over in the, in the Midlands and the North to get his majority is, uh, sh- is, is shrinking, if that holds true for the next three weeks. I mean, Sienna, what do you think is the best case scenario for, for Labour in this? Or do you think largest party is at all possible? Well, obviously, Labour uh, would say that they are aiming for a majority and still think that that is possible. And that is what, you know, figures in the the grassroots and also at the top of the party will tell you if you if you ask them about how the election is going. I think people in the Labour Party think the campaign actually has gone very, very well. Um, the Andrew Neil interview accepted. Everything has really gone right for Labour in this election. I mean, insofar as it's not exactly been reflected in the in the polls, although it looks like there is some movement, but it's still in the the margin of error. Um, to, for you know, for kind of closing that lead and and that gap. Sorry, for closing that gap. And certainly in Wales, it looks like it's getting better. And Jeremy Corbyn's uh, personal poll ratings are improving as well. So I think Labour overall are nervous and they were desperate for some kind of turning point at this at this very moment in the campaign. And I think uh, what we've seen is Jeremy Corbyn come out with this uh, NHS for sale under the Tories uh, document and a surprise announcement that wasn't trailed in any way. And that's what they were hoping will be the kind of pivotal point, a bit like the dementia tax in 2017. I mean, yeah, just to pick you up on that, I mean, do you think they had that saved up for an opportune moment? Because it does seem to have come exactly when something kind of bad happened for him and he goes, boom, and we're going to switch the agenda back to, to something a bit more positive for Labour. I, I mean, I, I genuinely actually don't know. I don't have a scoop on that. I think it's it's likely that they might have had it for a, a couple of days or something. I mean, people might have, um, yeah, might, people might assume that they were, they were saving it up and that this was a good moment to release that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, resistance from people in terms of countenancing that as an actual possibility but I think it plays into something that the electorate will already think about the Tories in terms of being untrustworthy with the NHS and that's why it might have a bigger impact than another sort of statement that Jeremy Corbyn might make on a different issue. Yeah I mean it's clear he's made that the kind of big focus of his campaign I mean together with Brexit and the NHS I think you could say were maybe the two big top line issues but one thing we noticed in 2017, was that there were lots of issues that kind of bubbled away under the surface that people weren't picking up on. I wonder if what you guys think those might be this time. I'm thinking things like ivory ban, for example, was massive on Facebook and no one really noticed. I mean, do you see any of that either talking to voters or online, perhaps? Um, I I guess the one that I've noticed most often probably doesn't quite fit into that category of particularly having been out canvassing in North London, but the anti-Semitism issue and the question about how um, enthusiastic or not Jeremy Corbyn is at actually fighting and tackling anti-Semitism in the Labour Party comes up very, you know, very, very regularly. Um, and I think particularly amongst not just obviously Jewish voters, a particularly large Jewish community in North London, but also amongst non-Jewish people but who have uh, you know, neighbours, friends, colleagues from the sort of Jewish community. Um, and so I suspect actually that if that does continue to play out as a significant electoral issue, its impact will probably be more geographically widespread than some of the assumptions that I think quite a few people were making previously of, well, that might affect the result in a small handful of constituencies, but not matter more widely than that. Right. And Henry, are there any, any of those, these sorts of policies that you think are kind of going under the radar a bit in terms of media coverage? Um, well, there's, there's going to be fewer than there were in 2017 because the Conservative manifesto has been constructed explicitly to avoid any of them. The guiding principle of the Conservative manifesto was if in doubt, leave it out. And so instead what you've got is, um, apart from Brexit, you've just got this relatively small-c Conservative range of, of policy offers. But some of those, when you work for, for example, if you work for an MP, um, it is impossible to escape letters about NHS car parking charges. Um, for example, and, and, and you know, potholes is another perennial one, although that, that does tend to go more to councils. And I think that there is sometimes a tendency when you work in Westminster and you write about national mm. politics and, you're, and your eyes are on these big ticket issues um, to underestimate the effect um, for an awful lot of... Because every Tory MP, I don't know, 
precisely what the data laws are on whether or not they can use constituent, uh, can, you know, constituents' data. But they will have a lot of people who have written to them about NHS car parking charges and potholes. Mm -hmm. And they, are now, uh, uh, they now have something to go and take to those specific voters. And depending on how well CCHQ have targeted it, I think, frankly, quite a lot of their relatively small beer spending commitments in specific seats and with specific voters could, could, could have an outsized impact on, on the election. Yeah, I'm interested in terms of, I think a lot of the Tory campaign seems to have been, in a way, quite defensive in terms of avoiding the mistakes of 2017. Um, and again, coming back to the animals thing, all, most of the social media I'm seeing at the moment is, is to do with, from the Tories, is to do with sort of cutesy like puppies and stuff like that. Because I think it's, it's like they fear the kind of, the, I don't know, the Facebook animal lover vote. Yeah, yeah, like. yeah. I mean, so the, you notice that this is the first Conservative manifesto that says, that says they're not going to make any changes to the Hunting Act. Now, it's always yeah. a bit of a mystery why that was included, because, you know, the, even if you're from the perspective of hunters, you know, the Hunting Act doesn't actually prevent fox hunting, really. Um, so it was always a bit of a sop to a quite narrow set of the activist base, and that's been, and that's been taken out. Um, but I, I think that the, there is a bit of a danger for the Tories, I think, in that, you know, Theresa May's campaign, one of the reasons Theresa May's campaign went so badly wrong is because her, her guiding star was not being David Cameron's campaign. And so they sort of went out of her way to do what, what, what David Cameron hadn't done, whether or not that was actually a good idea. And, you know, quite a lot of the stuff David Cameron did actually worked. And I think there's a, maybe a, a slight risk not maybe to their electoral fortunes, but in terms of forming the next government and what they do afterwards, that this Tory manifesto is going to be too conservative because once you've, quote-unquote, got Brexit done um, in January and you've delivered your spending pledges, you know, what is... It feels like a mandate that might go stale quite quickly if we're anticipating this parliament theoretically lasting until sort of the mid-2020s. Right. I mean... You talked there about learning lessons from the previous campaign. Um, Sienna, for Labour, it's a bit different because obviously you've, you're the only major party that's got the same leader as last time. Do you think that because it went so well in 2017 compared to what people expected, do you think there's been much kind of stock taking about what maybe didn't go so well and what that could be improved on this time? I think uh, Labour's strategy uh, from the beginning of this election campaign was certainly uh, do 2017, but more. <laughs> It, it was very much um, just do better with that strategy. And with the way that Brexit has gone and Labour has now shifted to an unequivocal backing another referendum position, so it would be soft Brexit versus Remain, and they're finding that that works very well in Remain seats on the doorstep and that they can actually you know, make this argument that the Lib Dem position isn't the democratic route and ours is. And because that's going on, uh, it does lend itself to replicating the, the kind of 2017 pattern in terms of gaining Remain seats in London and metropolitan seats across the country, uh, but actually not uh, making any progress and actually going backwards in terms of seats uh, in the Midlands and the North that were leave voting that you might assume that the Labour vote there is quite sticky, but actually maybe they will... Uh, stay home because they they're not enchanted with Labour's Brexit position now that it has gone that that remain. Um, so places like North East Derbyshire, where the Tories took that seat, and Labour was really desperate to to get it back. And you know th those are the kind of seats that are at, at risk of this election. So maybe 2017, but more is you know the the bet is that well the hope is that Labour could win places like Uxbridge. But if they don't manage to do that and they just build on majorities in North London seats that voted Remain, then that strategy won't have paid off so well. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, um, looking at the kind of fallout from this election, I, it's very hard for anyone to predict, but do you think there's a point at which people will look at Jeremy Corbyn and think, you've not made enough progress at this election, we're going to have to think again? Because there's a lot of commentary that suggests that actually Labour could possibly win with a different leader. Uh, I certainly think that, well, if we're talking about if Labour um, loses th this election and not in a way where, you know, it's big enough to um, do some kind of informal coalition or deal with SNP or Lib Dems or however that works, um, which, you know, obviously the Lib Dems would demand uh, that Labour change its leader anyway. 
I think there will there will obviously be a change of leadership and there will be um, a parliamentary party that actually will be boosted by a lot of Corbynites yes. um, because obviously at, at the last minute there are lots of selection contests where either Labour left candidates won outright with a constituency vote or they were imposed by the National Execu- Executive Committee and that led to a lot of people who supported Corbyn getting in to quite safe seats. But even then those candidates might be inclined to have a change of leadership, but not a change of direction in terms of the party, only a change of who the figurehead would be. So someone like Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's going to be doing the uh, BBC election debate on Friday, for instance. You mentioned the Lib Dems just there. I mean, Mark, from from an outside vantage point, it seems strange to me that Joe Swinson has been quite sort of aggressive to all sides in this, in the sense that it was... If the Lib Dems were ever going to be a force in the next parliament, it would have to be as a junior coalition partner. I mean, why do you think she's made... Do you think she's just trying to maximise her gains so that eventually she'll be in a stronger position? Well, coalition isn't obviously the only possible arrangement in in a hung parliament and probably the least likely, I guess, if we have a hung parliament this time round. I think it's partly because, you know, there there are some very genuine, passionately held differences between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. And if you take the issue of anti-Semitism, for example, you know, there are a lot of Liberal Democrats who feel very passionately angry about the lack of leadership from Jeremy Corbyn. Now, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn fans have a different take on that. But there are, you know, there is there is real genuine political disagreement in that sense between the parties. Likewise, on questions of nationalisation, for example, as well. You know, there are there are real substantive differences. But I think also, and this is why a lot of the Lib Dem criticisms have been aimed at Jeremy Corbyn specifically, rather than the Labour Party in general, is actually to win over, you know, say, tactical votes from Labour voters in Remain heavy areas. Part of the issue is to be different from the Tories, and that's relatively easy, Brexit. But also part of it is to be able to win over those Labour supporters, and that's where actually some criticism of of, of um, the Labour Party leadership can actually be quite helpful in that. And obviously you need to do it in a way that doesn't put people's backs up and that is justifiable, but I don't think it's a surprise, therefore, to particularly focus in on Jeremy Corbyn. What do you think would be a good result for the Lib Dems at this stage, looking at it? Mm. Well, I think uh, th- there's almost two elements to that. One is, you know, how many MPs are there? And actually, that probably matters more than the share of a vote in terms of what people view as a good or a bad result. Um, but also there is what is the makeup of Parliament and does Brexit go ahead? You know, so I think you know, a Lib Dem result of, say, 30 MPs and a hung Parliament and therefore Brexit doesn't go ahead would probably leave Lib Dems feeling much happier than, say, 60 MPs but a Tory majority. So the two do sort of go together. But I think in terms of number of seats, you know, any, any significant increase on the number of seats the party has sort of gone into the election with clearly, clearly would be welcome. But the overwhelming, I think, factor in terms of how happy or sad Lib Dems are at Christmas will be that question of, is the withdrawal agreement bill about to be voted through Parliament or not? Right. Yeah, there could be some quite glum Christmases up and down the country, I think, after this. I mean, Henry, the same question, really. I mean, what do you think the feeling is among kind of senior or Conservatives you've spoken to about the sort of likely range, um, if it is to be a victory? There are almost as many estimates of the Conservative um, majority, if there is one, or, or however many seats, or however many seats there is, as there are Conservative MPs and activists at this point. You know, prior to 2017, if a, if, a, if a Tory government went into an election with a double-digit polling lead and had retained it three weeks out from polling day, everyone would be fairly confident of, 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 a, of a majority. But after 2017, of course, nobody really thinks that. There's a some people. The pessimists, I suppose, not the outright pessimists who think we'll lose seats, but there's a consensus around maybe a 2015 result. And then after that, it just depends on what you can analyse and how you can apply your local knowledge to bid that number up. So, for example, the Scottish Conservatives are are increasingly bullish about their prospects um, north of the border, at least when it comes to retaining seats, if not to to increasing them. Uh, The Welsh Conservatives, um, for all that the the polls have shown Labour regaining some ground in Wales, on the ground, the Welsh Conservatives' estimates were always that they were going to be more likely to pick up six seats than nine. So the current polling is actually in line. on top of the ones on top of the so on top of the seats that they already had. Yeah. yeah. So so the current polls are actually where Welsh Conservative on the ground intelligence has been for a while, okay. and then you've got stuff coming from the southwest. And basically, the, the 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 question is how once you start adding these things together, and if you believe each one, then you start to get into the territory where Boris Johnson wins a majority of forty or fifty or sixty. And then of course you have the can he smash the red wall, and then you get into, and I think that I think it's a battle between. On the one hand, 
looking at the data, which currently suggests the Conservatives will do quite well, and just this long, long shadow of the last election when all of the data and all of the on-the-ground intelligence and everything else all suggested one result and then it ended up going another way. But I think that at the moment the balance of opinion in the party is there will probably be an overall majority, but it will probably be more likely to be in the 20 10 to sort of 15 to 30 vote range than anything else. I mean, that, this isn't just a kind of idle numbers game because that has really strong, you know, big implications for what kind of government we end up with. Yeah. If he's going to end up being in hock to a certain wing of the Conservative Absolutely. Party. Absolutely. It has a huge impact. I mean, it, 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 and also it affects the campaign, of course, because whereas when we just speculate about how we think the parties are doing, that's just a sort of parlour game. When CCHQ does it, that then determines where they send scarce resources, where they send campaigners and activists and money. Um, so it could actually it could fundamentally shape the race, but you're right. And some people, not conservatives, some some um, on the left that I've been speaking to have said, look, if it's going to be a conservative majority, they want it to be quite a big conservative majority, because that way it would discredit. Not really, I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> they've said it to me. They haven't said it in public, obviously, but they've said that yeah, it had yeah. two effects. One, it would mean that Boris Johnson could sell out the hard Brexiteers, which is what they anticipate he'd do if they gave him the chance. Yeah. Um, and he could pass some kind of Brexit in name only. And second, it would discredit. Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him and hopefully force Labour to confront the anti-Semitism issue. Whereas if, Jeremy, if, Boris Johnson, if Boris Johnson gets in with a majority of 20, there is a chance that he might get held to ransom by, um, by the Spartans or, or one or the other of these groups. Although it's important to remember that the hardcore Remainers have been kicked out of the party and the hardcore Brexiteers at this point are so desperate to get out of the European Union that they have rode in behind Boris Johnson's deal. So absent a result which basically left him in hock to the DUP, which would be hugely entertaining. I think that actually even a relatively small Conservative majority would be enough at this point to, quote-unquote, get Brexit done. Yeah, I mean, one of the... Uh, we talked about a bit about policies that are under the radar, but one of the, the other things that perhaps is really hard for pollsters to pick up is kind of differential turnout. I mean, um, Sienna, especially for Labour, who have kind of got a very strong youth brand endorsed mm. by lots of the, uh, you know pop stars and stuff like that. Raheem Sterling, I think? No. Do you Grime think for Corbyn has come back. Grime for Corbyn is back, having been taken down, I think. Um, I mean, do you think that there's going to be a big surge? We talked about a youth quake last time, and actually when you look into the data, it didn't actually happen in as big a way as some people suggested. I think some people um, get confused about what youth and young means, because yeah. I think we're, we're talking about sort of, you know, families and, and parents who really cared about the kind of education policy offer that Labour had there. So we're not talking about people my age in their 20s. We're talking about 30s and early 40s with the, with the youth quake stuff, which is, I think, some, some of the misunderstanding around that. But... Yeah, definitely Labour is going for, I mean, young pe- young voters, of course, because it's talking about things that particularly affect private renters. Um, and with an offer for lots of uh, council house building, for, um, you know, defining, you know, affordability, genuinely affordable homes in a, in a different way, um, talking about just all sorts of offers, like, yeah, tuition fees, for instance, um, and we might get some more detail on what would happen with people who, like me, already have that huge tuition fee debt. So those kind of things that they can kind of fill in the, the detail on uh, might come out over the next two weeks as well. And there's been a huge, huge drive to get people registered to vote, and that is really the thing that Labour activists have been focused on on the last few days, of course, uh, just ahead of the deadline, and ha- as you said, had lots of help from famous people and pop stars doing that just talking about activists rather than voters i mean is there i read a piece in the guardian the other day about how there were tons and tons of activists but maybe piling into particular seats whereas other seats have been slightly neglected is that something that people are sort of aware of and concerned about uh, I think that's I think that's something that always happens. It, it's inevitable that obviously Labour's membership is huge, half a million members, and a lot of them, of course, do live in London. And of course, those London seats are going to be flooded with activists in a far larger way than any other area of the country. I think there are things to counteract that. I think Labour Party has been has been doing regular Zoom calls in order to get people. So they explain that. <laughs> there's these. Um, so there's this app basically and the Labour Party will send out an email that day or the day before saying please join us for the Zoom call with John McDonnell and some sort of pop star or Rebecca Long-Bailey and another pop star Um, 
and they will uh, basically be giving activists advice in these calls about how to sell certain policies and um, telling them where to go and, and telling them how to be activists and how to talk on the doorstep to voters and there's also the momentum has has these digital tools like the my campaign map which is directing people to the right places so i think in terms of the number of activists turning up to campaign days of course in the south there, there will be more but at the same time there ha- there has been quite a lot of focus on getting people to uh, marginal places that uh, were leave voting in 2016 and that are important to keep I, I should have mentioned as well that mark wrote a book called 101 ways to win an mm. election so i mean speaking about the kind of ways you'd have to persuade voters how mm. How valuable do you think having a big surge of activists in a particular area is versus, let's say, the air war, social media messaging? Can you quantify those things, or is it quite tricky to I mean, it's, it's really difficult to separate out all the elements, but I think probably especially for the Liberal Democrats and Labour, and to an extent for Plaid in Wales, um, that there is a huge importance of that grassroots activism this time because one of the questions is not so much about winning votes over from, say, the Tories in Tory-held seats, but it's who is the most credible challenger. And not only who is the most credible challenger, but can you also persuade other people who might prefer to support one or the other, in (coughs) some way, pro-Remain parties, to maybe tackle the vote for you? And that presence of how many leaflets have you had through your letterbox? Did somebody call on your doorstep in person? How many posters do you walk past on your way to the supermarket, etc.? That can add up to a very powerful reinforcement of whatever the different figures are that different candidates and parties sort of bandy about. That sort of direct first hand, oh yeah, I know that. You know, this, this seat really the Lib Dems can win because I've had eight leaflets from the Lib Dems and I had only one leaflet from Labour or you know, the other way around in other seats as well, obviously. So I think, it, I think there will be some seats this time where that will make a massive difference. But also there will be an awful lot of seats where you know, voters see very, very little of frankly any party. Um, and um, probably they will generally be safe seats for one party or another, um, but also there may well be some seats that change hands, driven much more, therefore, by the regional and the national media than the on-the-ground activism. Have you been uh, canvassed by anyone in this election period? Uh, no. I mean, the fact I have a Lib Dem state board outside my house, and also I live in mm. Jeremy Corbyn's constituency, may, uh, may, were, slightly, put off, may <laughs> slightly put off Labour canvassers. Yeah, it's a strange phenomenon. I live in a seat where the, the sitting Labour MP has a, has a majority of about 35,000, and then you wouldn't know there was an election on at all. Yeah. It seems like a completely sort of parallel yeah. universe. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing that's interesting, that, I mean, yeah, obviously Jeremy Corbyn has a very large majority you know, to defend, so I'm not surprised that Labour are not putting huge amounts of effort in. I've not had, yet had a, a Labour leaflet, although I'm sure I will have you know, at least his election address in due course, um, is actually how relatively few Labour posters there are this time compared to last time where there seemed to be a lot of people who were really infused by the idea that Jeremy Corbyn was somebody new and therefore they did something that was new for them as well as in put up there for a Labour poster Um, and I guess this is one of the big questions going back to what you were saying Sienna about Labour trying to repeat 2017 but more so is can you do that if your leader isn't a new figure on the political scene you know can that sense of oh here is somebody new who's interesting and maybe isn't quite the demon that the media were making them out to be. That was clearly a big factor for Labour in 2017. Yeah. Open <laughs> question about whether they can repeat that this time. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. 
We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think I, I want to come on to the manifestos because I, I feel like last time in 2017 that Labour's, or rather this time their manifesto is being scrutinised more closely yeah, it definitely. Wasn't in Everyone in Labour feels that and, yeah. and feels that uh, last time they kind of were able to take people by surprise with a radical and ambitious manifesto. And this time everyone was expecting really big spending commitments and, and bold policies. So it has received a lot more scrutiny. What's the difference in length between the two? Because this time it's about 104 pages. Yeah. Is it similar last time? I can't, I genuinely can't oh, remember. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I remember the sort of the stuff that was sort of baked in before this manifesto. Yeah. Was in the last manifesto, if you like, so nationalising various things. Yeah, ending but, tuition fees and yeah. public ownership of quite a few things, yeah. And it seems to be, it's a strange, I mean, I read your piece in, um, in The Guardian again, <laughs> yeah, regular Guardian readers here at CapEx, about the way it's put together. And it mm. seems to be, it's simultaneously both very democratic, but also a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, I mean, it's a complex process and it takes a long time. And that's because... And Labour members just won't stand for anything else, basically. And the fact that at conference there were all these radical policy motions passed um, and, you know, there was... Usually some of this stuff is tried to... It, they try to deal with it behind closed doors in, in these compositing meetings and uh, you try to merge motions and perhaps water them down a little bit. You know, in one particular case, in the Green New Deal case, that failed and it, and it resulted in having two motions put to the conference floor and then that debate is kind of had out in the open and both passed, actually. So, yes, it was a, a hugely collaborative process and something that can get quite messy because obviously it's an opportunity for journalists to report on, oh, there's this big fight in the Labour Party over freedom of movement, for instance. I mean, ultimately, in the, any, in the meeting that, uh, that decides what goes into the manifesto from the party programme, called the Clause 5 meeting, uh, freedom of movement was barely discussed. It wasn't controversial at all. They, it was just totally unanimous. So some of these things are a little bit mis- sort of misrepresented in the media. Um, because of the kind of fights that happened beforehand. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're just talking about manifestos. Um, so, I mean, Henry, you've, you've touched on it already. It's very sort of safety first. Do you think that the Tories might have gone a bit too far in that direction? Because I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, if I were a Tory activist on the doorstep, there's not that much that they can talk to voters about beyond that. They've got some good core messages, which seem to resonate with a lot of people. But, I mean, when you've got Labour with this enormous list of policies um do you think there's a risk that the tories can seem a little bit too status quo but i think the danger is threefold um first of all it doesn't give labor uh, the tories much purchase on the day-to-day campaign because labor have a grid and they can keep bringing out eye-catching policies now it might be that those policies fall apart under scrutiny or don't all land but nonetheless a day we spend talking about labor's policy on broadband or labor's policy on the nhs or labor's policy on anything else is a day we don't spend talking about the Brexit and whatever else the Tories want to talk about. So I think that's a risk. I think the other, and this is more of a structural problem for the Tories, is that um, it might be enough to get them over the line now. You know, get Brexit done is a fairly appealing message for a country that's getting heartily sick of the whole process. And as I said, some of these um, relatively small beer offers are quite well targeted. But the question is, you know, what is the conservative vision for the country after we leave the after we leave the European Union. David Cameron, whatever you think of him, there was a Cameron project. There were there were there were domestic policy things that really sort of got his government going, especially education reform, for example. Now, Boris obviously hasn't been leader very long and he didn't really have the run up that of a spell in opposition that, that somebody like David Cameron had. But nonetheless, it isn't at all obvious as somebody who writes for a publication that specialises in covering the Conservative Party, what the Boris Johnson mission is 
after Brexit. To be Prime Minister? Well, yeah, well, that's obviously the very cynical. That's yeah. obviously the, and, 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 and I think there's a lot of truth to it, but I think that that's not enough for the party. No. Um, and as I said, this mandate, theoretically, is going to run until 2023, 2024. And the big question is, what are the, what are the Conservatives going to be doing in government at that point, and how do they, and how do they sell it? So I think that there are... I do think that, you know, obviously... You don't want a 2017. You don't want to take a big majority for granted and then stake your coalition through the heart to try and solve a difficult problem. But I do think that the, the party maybe runs the risk of just not having enough on domestic issues. And even if that gets them through this election, the question is then next at the next election, what's our offer at that point? Have, will we have done the necessary thinking? I mean, do you think, again, without getting the crystal ball out, do you think it's possible that they will just bring out some more policies before the election day? Because it's kind of... The sort of Cummings thing is he doesn't seem... He, he sort of... His big insight, I suppose, is that people don't really care about processes so long as the thing gets done. Um, and in that sense, I don't think people are going to say... If, if there's, like, an attractive policy, they won't go, oh, that wasn't in the manifesto. They'll just go, oh, I like that. Oh, sure, they might. But I think that has its own dangers because, obviously, the whole point of the manifesto is that they've been through it with a fine-tooth comb. They've, quote, costed, to a given value, have costed it, and, and they've made sure that nothing in there is going to explode in their faces... On the doorstep, if you get to two weeks out from polling day and they start scrambling around for more policies, that process, almost by definition, can't happen. Mm-hmm. And you run the risk of setting off a landmine inadvertently. And the other problem, of course, is that you can't as easily attack the Labour Party for you know, trotting out a massively expensive policy on the WASPy women two days after the manifesto launch that they hadn't mentioned. You can't really go in on policies like that and uh, on criticising the Labour Party for doing that and then start springing out what are probably going to be uncosted extra policies yourself. Mm. So the challenge is, in 2010 and 2015, the Tories had a very clear messaging difference with Labour, which was, you know, spending restraint and public, you know, probity and public responsibility versus reckless spending. Now, they're having to play a much more subtle game of good Tory investment versus bad Labour spending. And if you're trying to do that, the the lines are a lot less clear-cut and you have to be a lot more careful. And I think they want to be careful about chasing Labour down the grid, grid, if you like. Um, Mark, coming to the Lib Dems, I mean, when you're out on, let's say, on the doorstep, um, do you get people say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter what your policies are because you're not going to be in government? And how do you deal with that kind of response? No, not really. And I mean, I think in general... Um, policies come up a lot less when canvassing than people have never canvassed might expect. Um, and I think that's partly because, especially if you're canvassing on a cold evening or cold afternoon, people don't necessarily want to stand at their door for that long. But also because people sort of know that they tend to form a more general impression, some of it which is about the leader, some of which might be about the big issue of the day. But even, you know, even I find when, say, talking to people who raise the issue of the NHS, let's just give an example other than Brexit, is an awful lot of what drives people is a sense of, does your party like the NHS or does your party not like the NHS? And, you know, it's that more general impression rather than the details of specifically, actually, are you a party who wants to reorganise a bit of the NHS or not? But it, it's a broader brush, a broader brush picture. You absolutely, we absolutely do, you know, get some details that come up. And, um, you yeah, know, Henry was mentioning earlier the, the point about hospital car parking charges, you know, so you do get some details, but it, it's a more broad brush um, conversation generally, I think that canvassers of all parties you know, encounter, unless you know you decide to try to steer it towards a particular policy area because you think, ah, for this voter, that's the good thing to persuade him away from their party towards mine. So, sort of in a sense, it's that the policy is more of a signal; it's a heuristic mm. for something else rather than the policy yeah. itself. And, and I think a lot about having policies you know, in a manifesto is as much about avoiding a problem. Now, obviously, the Tories this time. You know, reacting to 2017 and trying to minimise the number of policies that might be a problem. But there's also something about if you don't have a policy on issue X, then that can become a negative story in itself. And also just having that set of policies in the manifesto means that you can be reasonably confident that, for example, all your parliamentary candidates being asked questions by people all across the country will come up with reasonably consistent answers mm. rather than if they're all left, you know, with a manifesto that doesn't cover the issue, then you may get a whole set of different answers and that can again become a negative story. Um, obviously, there's a principal purpose of a manifesto as well, which is um, traditionally been more important for Labour and the Tories in the sense that you know, the civil service actually pay a lot of attention to what's in a manifesto in terms of sort of what, what they think is then their job to, to implement. Um, but, but generally, I think manifestos are as much there to avoid problems when it comes to the detail as really... You know, because you're going to get into loads of conversations about policy number 38 on page 12, unless it's really dark. Yeah. I think it's interesting because yeah. the thing that has surprised me most in this election campaign is 
basically the opposite, which is that I found people spontaneously bringing up on the doorstep Labour policies. And I think Labour... Ha- I Which mean, ones are the most sort of resonant, do you think? Um, free and fast broadband for all. That is something that in a single canvassing session on the day after that was announced, I had brought up to me half a dozen times. And that was not me even bringing it up. That was people reacting to it. And it got immediate cut through. And then that policy was talked about for a few days. I actually think that policy was a little bit missold because I think the the free element of it was overemphasized when actually the point was about accessibility and, and the fast bit of free and fast broadband, um, which I thought was interesting. But people, whether whether they viewed it positively or or a bit negatively, were bringing that up. And I actually think, I mean, it might be a risk in the... Uh, the perception of Labour was this sort of give away a day kind of approach for a little while, for about a week. There was big policy announcements every single day in the run up to the manifesto in the week before uh, that launch. But I think Labour will be pleased by the fact that, yes, there's lots of controversy over, for instance, the the WASPy women and and that um, spending commitment. But actually, the fact that people are arguing about it means more and more WASPy women will be hearing about that policy. Coming back to the sort of the length and scope of Labour's offer. I mean, is it fair to say it's more of a kind of blueprint than a manifesto? It's like, here's what we want the whole of British society to look like ultimately. Because yeah, I think is. that if you look at it in a sort of five-year time frame, it's even the most starry-eyed Jeremy Corbyn supporter doesn't probably think you're going to be able to nationalise four major industries, get Brexit done, do all this stuff. So, I mean, is it fair to say that... Is there an issue there of sort of trust with the electorate where you say we're promising to do all this, but there's not really a, f- a way that you can do it within a parliament? Yeah, it's, it's a bit like uh, yeah, having a to-do list longer than a Leonard Cohen song or whatever it is Michael, <laughs> Malcolm yeah, yeah, Tucker says. A, yeah. it, it, it is hugely ambitious. Yeah, I mean, not even in terms of the, the policies themselves, but just the scope. It's, it has an answer for every single policy area, several answers, actually. And I think that is... Uh, a good thing for the doorstep in terms of activists having things to talk about. They know that they've got this whole document. And if someone brings up, yeah, oh, well, my husband, I, I had this last weekend, uh, someone, someone else in the canvassing group said, oh, um, had a voter who was talking about their husband's uh, dental care and, and, and uh, health care issues. And, and they had so much detail to offer them in response um, the issue is obviously trying to have every single Labour activist of half a million uh, getting to grips with all of those details. But yes, I mean, it's it's huge. It's it's massively ambitious. Um, but And I think that the, obviously people will be talking about whether the, some of those projects are, you know, shovel ready and creating a green industrial revolution in, in five years and 10 years is incredibly ambitious. But I think what we need to recognise is that a lot of the things that are in Labour's manifesto now, if Labour aren't elected at this election, I think in five years, in 10 years, we'll be looking back at some of those policies and thinking, well, that was obvious and everyone should have kind of come around to a bit of a consensus on those things at the time, things like, you know, the, the ambition in terms of house building in particular. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, Henry, from a Tory point of view, I mean, are there policies that you thought would have been in there? I'm thinking about things like stamp duty, for example, which everyone on the sort of centre-right is saying, you've got to do something about this. It's a rubbish tax. It doesn't even bring in that much revenue. You know, are there policies that you think should have been in there and were not? Yeah, I think, broadly speaking, housing in general is just this... This, this vast area that the Tories really badly need to tackle because it's, it's going to cause them, it's, going, it's causing the problems already and electorally speaking it's going to cause them more and more and more problems. We're seeing seats like, uh, in, for example, seats like Canterbury and we're, seeing, we're starting to see London overspill taking previously solid Tory seats and turning them into marginals and what we've seen from Brighton is that those marginals then turn into safe centre-left or left-wing seats um, if you allow that process to continue. And there's nothing... Terribly, but there's nothing terribly ambitious in there in the whole document. I think that's the broader complaint. Yes, there's nothing on there's nothing on stamp duty. There's no nothing radical on house building, although that's always a bit of a reach for the Conservatives. You know, you've got some really fundamentally defensive policies like the tax lock. Now, the tax lock actually caused David Cameron, um, you know, considerable difficulties. Not electorally. Electorally, it was great, but it left his government very little wriggle room. Uh, financially, which was one of the reasons that Theresa May actually went for an election in 2017, was to try and get out of some of those promises. So 
Yes, it, it's not so much individual-specific policies, it's more just the, the tone of the entire document. It is, it is almost entirely a defensive document. They, the government has a poll lead, it thinks it can get to polling day and maintain that poll lead, and it knows that if it can maintain that poll lead, it will return with a majority. And as a result, what you're seeing... And this really does suggest, like, for people predicting a kind of massive Tory landslide, the Tories don't think they're going to get one. Because what you saw with Tony Blair in 1997 is that he didn't look at his big poll lead and think, right, I just need to get this over the line. I, and he, he, he was like, no, I'm going to grab this ball and I'm going to run with it. And he went further and further and further, and he really harried the Tories. What they're seeing from the Conservatives... You're not seeing that. You're seeing Boris Johnson from his seat visits. He's dividing his time between attack seats and defence seats quite evenly. You've got a very small C Conservative manifesto. And I think that, you know, it might be that if this big window was here for the Conservatives to break the Red Wall and, and romp home through the Northwest and the Midlands, it might be actually that this manifesto, we won't know until after the fact, was a bit too Conservative. And it just didn't have enough of the bold, imaginative retail offers necessary to get some of those voters over the line. I mean, Mark, what's... Um you said like policy doesn't come out that much. Lib Dems have been really unlucky in the sense that their manifesto launch coincided with Prince Andrew mm. giving what I think we can all agree was not the most successful interview well, in I broadcasting if, history. If you're a media interview trainer, it was a brilliant interview because you've got your perfect case study to use in your training for decades to come. You but, so, what I mean, do you think that, though that the Leaving Andrew aside, do you think that the party's strength is also its weakness in the sense that it has a clear position on Brexit, but then its other positions are kind of being lost in that welter of uh, European focus? Well, I, I mean, the party has a huge number of policies. I tried to tally up roughly how many it is, but it, and it's, you know, there's a good few hundred policies in the Lib Dem manifesto. Obviously, the challenge is to be able to be distinct from both Labour and the Conservatives particularly when you're getting relatively small amounts of media coverage. And Brexit is a much easier issue on which to do that than, than, than other issues. I think also the Lib Dem Manifesto is, I mean, in one sense, curiously old-fashioned in that it is sort of properly and fully costed at the level of detail that you used to need for costings when there were, say, daily press conferences, and therefore you would have a full pack of journalists tearing apart your costings in one sort of intense interrogation session in a way that has meant I think a lot of the Lib Dem sort of spending commitments therefore are rather more uh, modulated and cautious um, and I think there is there is an open question and again it'll be a lot easier to judge this once we know the result of the election whether that sort of level of rigour and detail in spending uh, calculations and the like is actually really good because it means you can defend them or actually it's just a bit too cautious in the sense that, you know, I think with both Labour and the Conservatives, they've gone much more for the, well, let's grab the headlines, and if there's some controversy in the wake about some of the figures, let's ride with that. OK. I mean, just to finish off, guys, um, is it fair to say in each of your experiences, having been out and spoken to people, and, and just, you know, surveying the general scene, that this is the most kind of toxic, nasty general election we've had perhaps even in our lifetimes. I mean, certainly the ones that I can remember. And, and just a sort of a supplementary question is that is, do you see a way out of this sort of discourse where we can come back to talk about things in a slightly more civil manner, at least? I think Labour activists have recently been, particularly been sharing news stories about um, two Labour activists who are very elderly, one man, one woman, totally separate incidents were both were violently attacked um, by people, you know, saying you're a Marxist and, and literally putting them both in hospital. And, and also Labour offices, uh, Luke Pollard in Plymouth has had uh, homophobic graffiti and uh, the Labour candidate in Ashfield has had her, her window smashed. And there's been incidents like this all over the country. And I think Labour activists, I mean, there, there is something, you know, as Mark said, um, there haven't been as many Labour posters. I, I genuinely have heard a couple of Labour activists say that they're, they're scared to put up posters and that that is just how horrible... The situation is at the moment that it's it's so our politics at the moment is so kind of deeply felt with with the Brexit stuff and because it's so tied with kind of a feeling of uh, patriotism and just you know deep identity uh, and those sort of feelings that it's just just becoming a genuinely violent in in you know not only in rhetoric but physically as well. I mean, Henry, do you think these sort of chimeric promise to get Brexit done 
does hold out some kind of hope to get us out of this um, rut we're in, or is it? It's, it's quite a long time though. It goes all the way back to the expenses scandal, I think, in terms of this kind of disrupt between the political class and the, and the general public. Well, I think I think the expenses scandal divided the political class from the public, if you want to put it that way. But I think it was it was the referendum that that, that then divided the public and the and the political class within themselves. And I think that's where a lot of the poison is coming from, because. This is not the same as I mean I you know I think post expenses scandal politics have been awful and you know I think that the corrosive cynicism hasn't been good for our, for, for our democracy but it's not quite the same as you know viewing your friends and well, your neighbours and family members as on the other side of a really important existential question and that is doing some quite nasty things to our politics I don't know if it's just because I'm a you know instinctively conservative but my view is that these things are essentially cyclical um you know this is a period of, a, of of not quite crisis but it is a period of realignment the stakes are extraordinarily high they're much higher than they usually are at british general elections if we're blunt um and that is and there are all kinds of process issues which means that this issue that brexit hasn't been delivered as smoothly as one might hope and that once we're we're through that whether through that means revoke or whether through that means that Brexit is delivered and we've moved on to the future relationship negotiations, which my hunches will not animate the public nearly so much as the question of whether or not we're in or out. My assumption is that in 10 years' time, maybe even sooner than that, the, the heat will start to go out of this question um, and it will look a little bit like you know the row over home rule 100 years ago, You know, absolutely gripped everyone at the time, ferociously intense passions, and then a few decades on, it's just an utterly alien landscape um, because the world has moved on, and I think that might be the same here. So an optimistic uh, ten-year horizon there. And Mark, what do you reckon? Yeah, I, I guess I would fall in the optimistic camp as well um, for two reasons. One is, I mean, uh, Sienna, you mentioned the example of Luke Pollard and the, the horrible sort of abuse he's been on the receiving end of. Um, Luke and my sort of working lives co- crossed briefly a few years ago, so because of that I follow Luke on social media and I was therefore aware of the incident involving him in a way that I probably wouldn't have been you know, 10 years ago in a sort of mostly pre-social media world. So I think there is an extent to which we are much more aware of the really nasty and unpleasant incidents because they get much more traction through social media in a way that when we used to rely much more on the national and maybe the regional news for our understanding what's happening in the election, most of these events would never quite make make it into the national into a national story. Um, so I think there's a bit of maybe it's more awareness rather than actually more in volume, although I think this election is... It's definitely, you know, almost certainly a bit of both. But the reason, the other reason for my long-term optimism is if you look at a lot of the underlying sort of social trends and attitudes in this country, people, you know, if you look at the figures that actually Sunder Katwala shared on social media a little while ago about attitudes towards mixed-race marriage in this country. So, you know, when it, when it, when, when it really comes down to you and your own family, what is your attitude towards people who are in some way different from you? is actually those sorts of attitudes have continued to move in a more tolerant direction, more liberal direction, although obviously it's a smaller liberal, it's not a party political point. Um, and in, in that sense, you know, that sense of do we get on reasonably well with people who are in obvious ways different from us, the long-term trends continue to be quite hopeful. All right. Well, on that quite uncharacteristically positive <laughs> note, I, I think we'll uh, end things there. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.